Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Louise Aronson. She's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. Dr. Aronson has received numerous awards for her medical work, teaching, educational research, and writing. Today, we're discussing her book, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, and Reimagining Life. Uh, Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. So what inspired you to to write this book? Well, it sort of felt like the culmination of of my whole career. So I've been a geriatrician for 25 years, but somewhere along the line, I decided I also wanted to be a writer. And I really thought of those two things as separate. But after my first book was published and it was fiction, I began using the writing skills I'd, I'd learned, the sort of MFA, creative writing type skills to write op-eds and other opinion pieces. And I realized that that writing is really a tool. It's like a form of public health and that I could use it to reshape aging and healthcare in the United States if I just sort of turned to nonfiction. Um, and it also seemed like at this moment in history when all we hear about is everybody's aging and it's a disaster, and I can see from the front lines that it's not a disaster, it's an opportunity. Uh, it seemed like a really good time to write the book. Also, there are many books on aging and more and more, which is terrific, but there wasn't really one that pulled together um, the medicine, the social things, the actual personal stories, history of aging, everything all together so that you can see how the past influences the present and what we're doing in medicine influences society and vice versa. So I really wanted to try and pull all that together for people. Well, I, I agree. You did a really beautiful job at, at doing that. And, you know, I've read a lot of health books and um, yours is, is very different and um, quite a page turner as well. So it's not, you know, I think some people would think, oh, you know, aging is, is or um, might be a boring topic, but your book is not boring at all, um, which I think is, is a tribute to you because it, it is a topic that, that we need to talk about as you discuss at length in your book that, um, we need more awareness about this, and we'll get to that. But I just want to ask you first, what does elderhood mean? Why did you use that word? <laughs> That's a great question. So I didn't actually make it up. Um, it's, it's a term, but it, it's not well known, and I thought it should be. So the reason is, right now we tend to t- divide life into childhood and adulthood. And yet, if you were to line up an eight-year-old uh, 38 or 48-year-old and a 78 or 88-year-old, even the 8-year-old would know those people are different. They're different in how they look. They're different in what their bodies can do. They're different in their emotional intelligence and their life experience and how they spend their days. And that actually matters. But when we live in a world where we only see childhood and adulthood, we then set up 
the old our older years, like the third main phase of life, to be more onerous than it needs to be. You know, you hear all this negativity, which in the first place isn't true. Older people tend to be much happier than adults. Um, you know, yes, there are challenges, but we also make them worse by not addressing them. So it seemed to me if if we're like we create, let me just give you a really basic example. In parks, there are generally really fun, cool looking playgrounds for kids. And then there's basketball courts and baseball diamonds and all sorts of stuff for adults. And it's as if elders aren't there. And yet there could be a particular kind of walking path. There could be strength training things. There could be pickleball. And some places are starting to do all this. But when you don't have elderhood alongside childhood and adulthood, you have parks and hospitals and government buildings and movie theaters and restaurants that are built for other sorts of people. And then we blame old age for what is our design decisions, policy decisions, etc. So acknowledging, and, and elderhood at this point is longer than childhood. So it only makes sense to acknowledge that it's a third major phase with subphases. We talk about childhood. Think of think of in twenty years you have a neonate, an infant, a toddler, a young kid, a kid, a tween, a teen, a young adult, and that's in twenty years. But we, we tend to have a single term for people over age sixty five and my oldest patient has been hundred and eleven. So that's nearly a half century of life. And to say the sixty five year old is the same as the hundred and eleven year old is a, is patently absurd. I, I agree with you. My grandma lived to be 104, and she was quite healthy. Wow. Until, yeah, until about, a, you know, 100. I mean, obviously, she has some challenges, but she traveled till she was 90 and only stopped because of my grandfather, her husband. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I hope to be on the same pattern. And, you know, if I retire at the average 65, even 70, I've got a lot of time. And and as you said that, I mean, that's longer than my childhood. Um, so I yeah, I hope that I can have the health and I hope that the resources that I need are there for me because I agree with you, life is different, but that doesn't mean that it has to be bad. No, most people are actually happier. Like the 20th century gave us 20, 30, some extra years of life, and most of those come in elderhood. People in their 70s are now the fastest growing segment of the workforce, and some of that is because we set retirement when most people died, you know, or when people died on average at age 67, and now they don't. Um, and some of that is because people retire, and then they realize their lives um, need meaning and purpose. And the happiest people, and it's not actually just the happiest, people who are actively engaged socially, economically, this can be volunteer, it can be arts, it can be family, it can be whatever makes you happy. People who are engaged in that way aren't just happier, they're actually healthier. They tend to live longer and live better. So I think we need to start thinking of uh, the early years to decades of elderhood as an opportunity, as another phase of life. Um, adolescence, like we all we all know about adolescence, and now it seems to last well into many people's twenties, but it <laughs> actually didn't exist prior to at some point in the 1800s with child labor laws and the Industrial Revolution. So it's not even 200 years old. This later phase of life is something similar. It's historically new, and we are the generation with an opportunity to divine what we get to do and what it means 
And for many people, this is really exciting. There are tons of septuagenarian entrepreneurs these days. There are, you know, I mean, look at the presidential candidates, and people obviously have mixed feelings about that. But the fact is, they reflect our larger society. We're living longer. We have more opportunities. And the limit is really our imaginations um, at this point. Are there physical changes? Of course there are. But, you know, would you want a 17-year-old running the country? No, they have different limitations. Same with a 27-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree with you. You had um, what one, um, I, I'm not sure what to call it, it was a professor who t- he tested his class and he asked them to write down what they thought old was. And then he asked them to write down what he thought elder was. And he got different answers. And I thought that was really interesting, um, our perception of, of old, when really it is half our life now. Um, we're living longer. And um, can you just talk a little bit about what people perceive as old? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, so this is Guy Miko at Berkeley, um, and he would he would literally give them a minute just to instinctively respond to old and elder. And he did this with his students, but he also did it with colleagues and friends, people inside medicine, outside medicine, you know, people in their 20s and people in their 70s and everywhere in between. And everybody did the same thing. When it was old, you saw feeble and weak and white-haired and, you know, sad and all these things. And when, you, when he gave the word elder, you know, respect power, wisdom, all these really good things. And if you actually look up, uh, elder always pertains to an, an older, uh, you know, adult person, adult, older human being. Um, but if you look up old as it pertains to a human being, the definitions are identical. So this notion that old is bad is something that we're imposing on the word. The word doesn't, it just means having existed longer. And that's good in the sense that if we're imposing it, we cannot impose it. And looking at part of why I want to look at the history of old age was to sort of see that, you know, it waxes and wanes. Sometimes being an older member of society is the best thing. And sometimes it's the worst thing and everything in between. Hmm. So it really is about a matter of our policies and our cultures. And that's good because we we can decide to change it. Um, the other thing is that we often talk about old age as just bad. And yet, when people do the old elder exercise, it shows that they also know it's good. They know that experience counts. They know that you tend to accrue things that matter over your lifetime. So we know both stories, but we tend to preference the old as bad one. Um, and you see this all the time. You see it with things like silver tsunami. It used to be that the population was sort of a pyramid, tons and tons of young people and then fewer people as you moved up through the ages. And now it's more of a rectangle about, you know, moving towards a rectangle for the foreseeable future with about the same numbers of people at all ages. And people talk about that as if it's a catastrophe. But when you look at the triangle, what's happening? What's happening is that a ton of children are dying. And people are having extra kids because you know many of yours will die. We want to go back to that. That's absolute insanity. We tell mm-hmm. one side of a story and not the other. So one of my big arguments is let's tell the whole truth. Because for every age of life, including elderhood, the whole truth includes goods and bads. And we can't make the goods better or address the bads if we're not even willing to talk about them. 
Well, and, and you know, we, we need to talk about it, but we're also living in a, a a world that is obsessed with being young. You know, we people get work done, so they look younger and are, are, you know, they put makeup on and they're afraid to get older. I mean, we dread our birthdays and, and you know, we're... It, it, this this is something, of course, that needs to be addressed because we're all going to age. We're aging all the time. And, um, you know, that fear of getting older is, of course, going to affect how we're going to live when we're older as well as how we're going to perceive those that are in that situation. Right. Well, I mean, people's first gray hairs generally come in their 30s. Um, wrinkles usually come by 40s, um, particularly in white people. If you have darker skin, you you get 10 or 20 extra years without wrinkles, which is fabulous. Um, so we all age. I mean, it's sort of interesting that everybody keeps spending time and money on these things because also everybody keeps getting older. So there are a lot of people laughing their way to the bank and multiple houses and uh, millions and billions of dollars on the backs of this fear. Um, so people spend money, and there's a little delusion, but I think we've all had the experience where, you know, half a block or 20 feet away, you think a person's a certain age, but you get up close and you can actually tell the truth. So there are a few problems to that. One is you're not actually getting what you're paying for, um, so that may not be mm-hmm. the best use of time. Um, more importantly, um, there are a bunch of researchers, including Becca Levy at Yale, who have looked at attitudes towards aging and how that influences how you age. And people who are more positive about aging get heart disease, the number one killer in the United States um, and and most of Western countries. Um, They get heart disease seven years later. The people who are positive about aging are less likely to have Alzheimer's markers in their cerebrospinal fluid, and they recover better from hospitalizations. So people who accept their aging are not only happier, they are healthier and more functional. So they're literally aging better. It's completely counterintuitive, but you don't sell attitude. And we live in a very consumerist society, Mm -hmm. so they're going to sell you creams, but you're still going to get wrinkles. And yet the attitude thing, the thing you can control, um, we don't hear as much about. And then the third piece of this is that when we do things to pretend not to be old, it looks like there are fewer old people. And when there are fewer old people or the appearance of fewer old people, then that... uh, very large and very much growing uh, group loses power. It loses power to say, design this building so I too am comfortable in it. Design this public park so that I have ways to exercise and interact with other people that are fun for me. Design this hospital not just thinking about children and adults, but thinking about me because it's my age group that spends more time in hospitals. You, You become invisible and you lose your power. And then you also create the very future you dread. Because if we're denying age and we're saying age is bad, then we're ignoring all these opportunities to make it better so that when we get there, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're all aging. The option is to die young, not a good option. So if we celebrate and embrace this, we become a huge, powerful segment of society. In fact, most adults and elders 
um, have gray hair and have wrinkles. And if we just owned that, the thing you'd want to be would be the person with the gray hair and wrinkles, because that's who's powerful um, and visible all over society. Yes, younger people will be better looking, but older people have all kinds of other things. And most people I know, yeah, they'd want their 25-year-old body, but they wouldn't want their 25-year-old insecurity or brain or emotional intelligence or anything else. So there are trade-offs at all ages. Uh, which is, um, I think, really important to note because um, although our, our bodies age, we we do get that wisdom as we get older. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to be twenty again and and go through everything I no. went through at that time. I, I quite enjoy what no, I'm doing now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't I don't need all that stuff. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. We're talking today with Louise Aronson, and we're discussing her book Elderhood, and we'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. What is your level of sexual expertise? Want to find something new? Listen for Sisters of Sexuality every week on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There's no judgment here, and every topic is safe and sex positive, so we'll explore them together. It's time to push your sexual boundaries and try some new experiences with your hosts, Taylor Sparks and Parish Michelle Blair. You won't want to miss a single show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. My co-host Oliver is a seven-pound chihuahua cross, and he sits through all my shows with great puppy patience. 
He was super happy when I came home with Carbona Pet Stain and Odor Remover, which is an oxy-powered formula with active foam technology and is engineered to permanently remove pet stains and odor. Carbona is a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning expertise into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. Although he tries his best, Oliver sometimes does have accidents. I pulled out the Carbona Pet Cleaner and voila, we were stain free and clean. It was easy to use, pet safe and hassle free. The built in two in one brush tackles stains at the surface and deep into the carpet fibers. It is now my other best friend. Use code FTTC at Carbona.com to save 20%. Happy cleaning. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Louise Aronson. So, Louise, you're a, a, a geriatrician, and um, I, I, I'm wondering, first, before we get into that, um, there, there's a comment that happens a lot, and it started to happen to me when I turned 30 from doctors. I was told that I was old, and I should accept the symptoms that I had and move on with my life. And And how do you feel about comments like that? Do you think that we should just accept that our bodies are getting old and and live with something or do you think that there is more that we can do oh there's absolutely more so old is not a diagnosis it is a reality but um, I'm going to tell you my very favorite sort of story slash joke of all time which is actually a true story about uh, I can't remember if he was nine or just off hand if he was 96 or 97 but it was a man in New York um, whose primary doctor was a colleague of mine but anyway she wasn't in and he had a sore knee so he went in and saw someone else and the person did the usual thing that we doctors do you know like asked all these questions there was no apparent injury moved the knee around and said to the guy well you know what do you expect the knee is 96 years old and the man without missing a beat said well my other knee is also 96 and it doesn't hurt a bit so Old age is not a diagnosis. Does it increase your chance of having um, medical issues? Absolutely it does, but it's not really a diagnosis. The other thing is there are things and changes, we all know this, that that come with age, and maybe you can't change um, them fundamentally, but exercise, for example, building muscle to increase your ability to do those things that matter to you can happen at all ages. So the studies go through age 100. I'm assuming if it works at 100, it works at 102 or 104. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't know this. And doctors don't get training in old age and physical therapists don't get training in old age. And so they really don't push people. They just try and get them to, to kind of like toddle along and or, or do something, you know, well enough instead of saying, you know, if you work at this as at any age. And in fact, you know, if you're young and fit, yeah, maybe you shave a few seconds or minutes off your running time. Okay, terrific. That's good for you. But if you're older and you're having trouble walking and suddenly need a cane and somebody were to tell you the truth, which is with really hard exercise, there is a very good chance you won't need that cane, you would probably do it because the benefits to you are far greater in your life. Um, so, so we really need to, number one, say old age is not a diagnosis. Make one of the diagnoses associated with old age. And two, consider all the options, which include really doing more with the body. Like if a joint is bad, you can build the muscles around it, and that unburdens the joint, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find alternate ways of doing things, but that's considered, quote, unquote, not medicine. And this is one of the huge problems with our healthcare system because our healthcare system 
um, is 97% medicine. And our lives, the health in our lives is only 30% affected by medicine. So there's this huge disconnect between all the functional and social things that really improve our health and what our so-called healthcare system focuses on. Um, so definitely don't let somebody just say, well, that's your age. You say, well, maybe, and what can I do? Um, because here's what matters to me. Here's what I need to be doing. And there's no reason I shouldn't be able to do it with the right support or help. Um, that I, you know, I, I love what you just said about how our, our healthcare is 70% medicine, but our lives are only affected 30% by that. I think that's really important for us to note um, that there's so much more about our health um, in that, especially when we're talking about aging, because we know that if we start with good nutrition when we're younger, we're going to ha- be healthier when we're older. And if, if we talked about this more, and, and you know, this is one of the nice things about the internet is there is we can access information more than we used to be able to but we can be healthier as we get older definitely i mean it's really interesting we're learning things that what happens in utero affects how you age you know whether your mother had trauma there's this new thing called epigenetics which is that our Mm -hmm. actual experiences seem to change our genes and that can be passed on to other generations but we also know that what we eat as children, you know, how active we are, all those things make a difference. Now, that's not so helpful if you're already an adult or an elder, right, because <laughs> you can't go back in history. Um, but we can do more to better the aging of future generations by realizing that it's not like there are the old people and there's everybody else, because I, most of us will become old people, and all of us, whatever age we are, how we're living now will influence our old age and therefore the, the, um, our society generally. Um, also, we, we need to really think about that at all ages, even if you're 92 already, there are things that you can do and that others can um, do in, in society or in an environment to improve life. Sometimes it's that with the right um, work, you can actually do something again. Sometimes it's that you need a workaround, but we also make that hard and then we blame old age. If you think of a household like... Um, functional things in a household. For kids, we have colorful, fun, playful, adorable things, tons of them everywhere, right? And for adults, we have sexy, stylish, practical, you know, like all these different sorts of things, um, you know, from, from what you use to open a cabinet to everything else. And then what do we have for old age? We mostly have ugly, functional things. And then people say, oh, well, old people, you know, mm-hmm. they just have these ugly, functional things. But but that's because that's what's being made. It's not because that's what people want. And people, in fact, don't like some of the assistive devices, like they don't want to put in grab bars and they don't want to use a walker because they're ugly. They don't need to be mm-hmm. ugly. That's a decision we're making. And we're all going to need those things. So why not make them better? And people are really starting to do this, which is great because the fact is if you had a grab bar on the bathtub Little kids could use it to safely get in and out. A very pregnant woman could use it. Somebody with a sprained ankle or broken wrist could use it. We can all use it as we get older or if we've been really sick and, you know, having chemo and getting in and out of the tub. I mean, these are things that we could all use. We just need to make them attractive and stop blaming old age for what is a failure of of us to (laughs) not to treat old age differently or specially, but to treat it as we already treat childhood and adulthood. 
I, I agree. And the first thing I thought of was shoes, because um, everybody who knows me knows I've got pretty cute shoes. But, you know, I, uh-huh. I wish that I could get functional cute shoes that weren't, you right. know, clunky and, and all of that, because it would it would be better on me. But I've told my chiropractor, I'm like, I'm always going to have cute shoes. And, um, you know, <laughs> it, I mean, I think that that is important. I remember my grandmother was 98 years old and my aunt took her shopping for shoes and she rejected all of them because they were bringing her shoes made for somebody who was 98 with balance issues and arthritis. And my aunt finally said, what do you want? I don't understand. And she said, I want shoes that click when I walk. So, you know, she still wanted to feel young and beautiful and why shouldn't she have, you know, I think that that should still be important. Right, but do you have to have a heel and click when you walk or, you know, there, there are, we also have to acknowledge that things change, right? So maybe you could have shoes that, that were more safe, you know, but were also cute. Yeah, which, <laughs> right? d- which I don't think really not... exists or even at the time. I'm not sure now, but at the time they did not. Yeah, the they shoes they were bringing didn't. her were were you know had big soles and were clunky and you know it's not it didn't make right. her feel beautiful and she really still exactly. wanted to feel that way and I think she should have been able to. So this you know I'm trying to bring home. You're right. I mean these things right. aren't that they're not attractive and I think they also you know having to use a walker and having to use those things brings out of vulnerability. So we have to admit that we're at that stage in life. And I think that brings out a mortality as well. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of this comes with the fear of aging and dying that our society has brought us and sort of let's embrace our aging and let's enjoy where we are. Right. And it's, of course, completely natural to be afraid of dying. I mean, you've only ever been alive that you're aware of. And it's, you know, it's it's completely natural. So I, I don't mean to diminish that in any way. On the other hand, there are, you, you see these people sort of wobbling, you know, visibly old and unsteady. And then they'll say, I don't want to use a walker because people will know I'm old. Well, a better, you know, to walk confidently and at a decent pace with a walker makes you look much less vulnerable than to wobble down the street, you know, where you, you know, somebody thinks a gust of wind is going to take you over. So sometimes, you know, we have, we have made these prejudices so strong that people do themselves grievous harm um, in the name of looking younger, uh, as if, you know, youth was the greatest thing. And I'll just say one more thing about the shoes. The number of women whose debility comes from having worn bad or high-heeled or some of the cute shoes in their younger years where it seems not to matter um, is incredible. I mean, you can really accelerate your later life debility um, by a decade uh, with the wrong shoes. So we also need to think about you know, just because you can do something in youth, should you? Like now we're learning some of these <laughs> hardcore exercises are the ones that are ruining people's joints later. So mm-hmm. because we can do things, should we? Um, you know, and then you also want to think about what was the point of high heel shoes? What was to make a woman's look, you know, legs and butt look a certain way for the male gaze? Well, you know, if you're 
88 is, you know, like, you know, or if you're 28, mm-hmm. is, should that be your goal? I mean, I think there are all these bigger, larger conversations we need to be having about um, what is cute and who gets to define it and, you know, should we be harming ourselves um, or yeah. isn't there a way to be sexy and attractive and healthy all at once? And maybe it's just that we haven't thought that way yet. Yeah, Which is well, what I, I think we, like, I think I we, have we can be because cute. the 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 availability of of cute practical shoes is very very small, and I think it shouldn't be. I think we should have access to both, and I don't think you should have to be practical and and give up how you feel about yourself. Um, I you know I've I've gone through a lot of uh, thought on this in my life, and I think it is important to feel good. Um, and yes, but, oh, at all ages. But I, I, I agree with you. I think we shouldn't be hurting ourselves. So th- this is an opportunity for somebody on right. Dragon's Den or Shark Tank. They need to create shoes that, that will make us feel good and not hurt us. Um, so I I want to talk about um, what you learned in school about getting older. Like, did you have a lot of training on what to do um, with your elder patients? Or is that something that is lacking in education? Oh, so it's really lacking. I mean, even even now, although it's better now. So I went to medical school um, from 88 to 92, so that's quite some time ago now. And, you know, we had uh, medical school is a four-year process. Um, there, uh, you know, we, we had maybe three or four months on kids and um, some hours on older people, and usually it was just like a little mention of something in, in the context of another. We didn't, unlike for kids where we had focused courses, we didn't have any focused courses on older people. Um, the whole rest of the curriculum was adults. Now, this makes no sense. If you look just at hospitals, about 6% of the, of people in hospitals or hospital admissions are kids, and they're a quarter of the population now. Older people are 16% of the population, but 40% of hospital stays, and they're also overly represented in outpatient. And so to not have any curriculum on them really doesn't make sense. It's partly historical uh, because there didn't used to be so many old people, but we need to get uh, the healthcare system up to date with, with, you know, the current demographics. We learn a normal is basically a 70 kilogram man. One can assume that he's white and he's heterosexual and he's somewhere between the ages of, you know, 25 and 40, because if he's none of those things, he has a particular disease. Like if he's going to be black, he'll have sickle cell disease. If he's going to be gay, he'll have AIDS. If he's going to be female, he'll be pregnant. As if those conditions describe, you know, human beings, we we need to have a larger range of norms. We're doing a little better now, um, but people often and don't know what they don't know because they really just weren't trained in this. So this is another huge opportunity for redefining how we think about life and medical training. And it's not just doctors, it's social workers, it's nurses, it's physical therapists and occupational therapists tend to do a bit better. Um, But it is crazy that the people who get the most medical care are the people about whom we learn the least. Um, and I'll just add to that. People say, oh, well, this is such a problem. Like old people are using so much health care. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but children use 
disproportional amounts of educational services, and adults use disproportional amounts of employment services and consumer goods. So I don't think this is uh, like blaming old age situation. At different stages, we have different needs, and the healthcare system should reflect the population that needs its services most. I, you know, I agree with you, and I, I never even thought of, of blaming people as they get older for needing the the healthcare system. Although I can see how that could happen, I think it's just it would be normal. I mean, as you get older, there is going to be more that's wrong, um, and then we do mm-hmm. eventually die. So we are going to need the system to help us with that and to diagnose us and to care for us as, you know, most people need hospice care and, and medication and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So I can see how they would be, um, you know, needing more care, but I'm, I'm shocked that you wouldn't get the training in, in that care. I mean, you had a story in your mm-hmm. book about somebody who came to hospice care with a Parkinson's diagnosis, and then you realized he was on medication that isn't for someone his age, which, you know, you, you mentioned that that's not very common, but I can see if your training is, is really limited, how a, a doctor would maybe not even know that they had made that mistake with somebody and given them a medication that's not for somebody who's over 70. Oh, that happens all the time. It's actually one of the leading causes of hospitalizations and one of the leading harms um, in this country, uh, that it's adverse effects. And the reason for that is that most research, they'll say older people are different, so we're not going to include them in our study because they're going to mess up our science. This is even mm-hmm. for diseases that happen most often in older people. And so they'll study, they'll having said older people are different, they will study something on, you know, adults or middle-aged people, then they'll apply it to elders. And when the elders have adverse effects, which they do in huge, well-documented, enduring numbers, they will blame old age instead of the bad science that didn't include the relevant population. Now, this is changing in important ways. We're seeing more and more studies all the time in older adults, which is great. Um, and the NIH finally passed a rule that you have to include old people in studies. Um, they passed rules that you had to include women and people of mm-hmm. color and children 20 and 30 years ago, but old people only made it in 2019. Um, oh, and then over-the-counter drugs do the same thing. They really harm old people. But there are no precautions. You see ones for kids and pregnant women, but not so much for old people. Um, you know, I, I knew, uh, I actually knew most most um, studies, I've done talks on this, are done on, you know, um, adult white men. This is why women have been excluded and we didn't understand women's heart attacks for a long time, etc. You know, right. and it, it, it doesn't make sense that, that we're just doing our studies on a very small part of our population if you're excluding women, children, elders, you know, and, and anybody who's not white. I mean, this is this is right. showing that that like how is how is our medicine actually been proven to be effective and safe? In my opinion, um, and and right. Um, well, it was the yeah. men doing science in their own image, right? <laughs> yeah, so they- exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and and I'm I'm you know I'm I'm not surprised that that um, elders weren't included, but I am surprised that that only changed this year, um, and and so I'm glad it has because we need to to look yeah. at that. But wow, we are slow for change, aren't we? For sure. Yeah, very slow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to take of a rallying break. and blaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Louise Aronson, and we'll be back shortly.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. What is your level of sexual expertise? Want to find something new? Listen for Sisters of Sexuality every week on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There's no judgment here, and every topic is safe and sex positive, so we'll explore them together. It's time to push your sexual boundaries and try some new experiences with your hosts, Taylor Sparks and Parish Michelle Blair. You won't want to miss a single show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. To, we're talking today with Louise Aronson and discussing her book, Elderhood. So, Louise, you know, knowing that, that this is a, a problem that our elders aren't being taught very well in school how to care for them, what do you think should change so that they can get the care that they need? Uh, well, You know, I think in medical education, we need to not define a single norm as an adult. The fact is that life, um, you know, the average lifespan is now 80 years. So we're only in that little normal range for a small fraction of time. And I think for every medical school class, instead of saying this is normal, oh, and here's what happens to kids and elders and, you know, people who have chronic diseases and this, that, and the other, we should say um, if if they're doing it by organ systems, so they often do, here's the heart. The heart looks like this is a kid, this is an adult, this is an elder. 
you know, and then here, here are the diseases that, that can happen to the heart in childhood. Here are the diseases that can happen to the heart in adulthood. Here are the diseases that can happen to the heart in elderhood. So I'm not saying, oh, we need to prioritize one over the other. I'm saying let's give life's three main phases uh, equal attention. Now, do certain things need, um, you know, tend to happen more at certain ages than others? Yes. Um, there are some genetic conditions that people are born with that you would address more uh, for childhood. There are other ones that don't manifest till later, and you might do more in adulthood or elderhood. But I think we need to acknowledge um, the social realities. So the Centers for Disease Control have said that uh, 70% of health is, uh, is um, controlled by social determinants. And yet in medicine, we sort of pretend that science is objective and an organ is an organ is an organ. So I think an overhaul which acknowledges that science is absolutely essential, but social determinants are huge factors in health that we need to pay attention to would really help. It would also help us as a society because medicine is about treating disease. And what we want is not to get diseased in the first place. We want to be healthy. We have a healthcare system that has tons of specialists. So it essentially stands by while you get sick and then it comes in with great care. But wouldn't it be better if it used some of the already existing abundant data to keep us healthier in the first place? Um, I, I love how you said that, I, and I definitely agree. I mean, we um, there and the, there needs to be change, of course. Um, and you know, one thing that that came to mind as you were saying this, of course, you learn that a child gets this, and an adult gets this, and an older person gets this, but. Um, also, I think teaching things that way can can mean that you can miss things if something happens early or late to somebody, um, and and right. so have it right. And so, because I've heard that exactly. before, you're you're too young for that. So, I mean, I mentioned right. before when I turned thirty, I was told I was old, and I should accept uh-huh. it, but. You know, I had, um, well, I still have chronic neural Lyme that's in remission. So when I was 20 uh-huh. and looking for a solution, I was told I was young and I would get over it. And, and I think that right. you know, we need to, to assess that pe- something can happen to people at all ages, but we should focus on the prevention part as well. So these things don't happen. Exactly. And understand, if we understood social determinants, we'd also understand that age is a relative thing. You know, someone who's lived on the streets may um, be 50 and resemble an 80-year-old, and someone who's been really fortunate um, and has eaten a healthy diet, et cetera, et cetera, might be 80 and look more like what we expect from a 60-year-old. So it's not just about age, but we won't even know what diseases happen at different stages if we don't consider that. Um, but it's so true. I mean, I think missing a diagnosis or blaming age, whether the person's young or old, you know, to say, oh, you're too old for that, you're too young for that, um, is, again, sort of a, like like that knee story that I told earlier. Yeah. It's sloppy diagnosis, right? So there's never mm-hmm. an excuse for that kind of abdication of responsibility to figure out what's going on with the individual in front of you. Well, exactly. And, and like you said, age isn't a diagnosis and it's also not a lack of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, so, right. um, you know, so when I was 20 and there was actually quite a lot wrong with me and they wouldn't even look into uh-huh. it. Um, you know, I think about that now and I didn't know how to defend myself at the time. Um, right. and, and it's well, actually- there's also a really good literature that it probably had to do with your being female too. 
Oh yeah, that, I've done a lot of shows. Women are often this. written off as hysterical. I feel like I have dramatic. the tools behind me now, but but I shouldn't have to be in my forties to have those tools, and I shouldn't have to have a radio exactly. show to 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 know that. Right. Um, you know, and I I think that um, we should not be you know ageist or sexist in medicine for sure because mm-hmm. um, we all have illness at some point in time and we all do need help and it's real and I think when people reach out it is real absolutely definitely yeah Yeah. so um when when people are getting older you know there's also um other things that we're not willing to talk about and one of them is end of life planning how do you approach this with people um I usually start with sort of an open question like you know have you you know, we, we all die, and sometimes I'll make a joke like, um, you know, nobody really likes it, but, you know, human mortality is holding steady at 100%. So um, the best thing to, the best way to get an ending that you want, um, and yes, of course, you don't want to die, is to have a sense of what you want and what you don't want and to plan for it. Um, and, you know, have, have, have they thought about that at all? And some people have and some people haven't. And if they really haven't thought about it, then the, the key thing, you know, and luckily I've mostly done primary care in my career, so I have an ongoing relationship with people, is to get them to start to think about it. Um, another really helpful thing is to say, like, have you seen anyone or heard about a death that you thought went particularly well? Um, and have you seen or heard about a death that you thought really didn't go well or, or something that really, like, scared you? What, you know, what are the things that scare you? And you can sort of begin to make a list of what matters and what seems really scary, and then what can we do about it? Because there's actually a lot you can do. Can you control everything? No, but that's true of every aspect of life. Um, but certainly, like, if you know what you really want and what you really don't want and you communicate that to other people, the people who will be around you um, when the time comes, the important people in your life, and then also the people who would be helping to care for you on your medical team, um, you're much more likely to have an ending that matters. And I I think the the last key thing about death is that one of the most important things to think about with death is life. Um, (laughs) The way we think Mm -hmm. about our death should determine how we live our lives. And yes, there's an ending, but it really can inform how we make the most of the time we have until that ending comes. We may not want it to come, but knowing that it will can really um, help prioritize in life and give life more pleasure and meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I've seen um, people who have done the planning and I, you know, I've, um, and that haven't, and it is also easier on your family if you've done that for them, um, whether it's so the much care- easier. Yeah, like, in, you know, they're grieving and they're going through something and then they have to decide on what kind of care you want or, or mm-hmm. you know, when you can't communicate that or what kind of funeral you want mm-hmm. or what you want done with things. And and um, so I think that that is important. And I've talked to my family about it because um, mm-hmm. because I've seen it go both ways. And, um, you know, I've, right. I'm in my 40s and I have a, a, a end of life plan um, because I don't want to mm-hmm. do that to my family. So I don't think it's right. And, about. You know, things can, yeah, things can happen at any age. I mean, certainly yeah. you see the mortality curve start going up at 50, so that's a good time to do it. But um, we also know that 
families where the person didn't express their wishes are more likely to have complicated grief and post-traumatic stress disorder from the death than mm-hmm. families where the person communicated. I mean, in some ways, the other people may have to make decisions, but it's much easier to make a decision if you know what the person wants. And so you're not deciding for yourself. You're doing, you're really doing what, what it says. You're, you're the proxy. This is what he wanted. This is what she wanted. I don't have to decide. All I have to do is communicate this person's wishes. I'm just the proxy. Um, and my way of showing them love or respect or doing this job, this really important job they tasked me with of being their proxy is to just communicate their wishes, not to make a, dis- a complex decision myself. That is such a gift to give to your family. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. Now, when when somebody is older, um, and I think this is a lot of people's fear, is they, they do end up needing care at the end of their life, whether it's mm-hmm. somebody coming into their home or ending up in a hospice. How can a family member tell that the, the care is appropriate and is what they need? Hmm. Such a hard one. There's such variability and, you know, and people can only afford certain sorts of things. But Mm -hmm. I think one of the best ways is to stop by unexpected at the place, even before the person moves in, if at all possible, and certainly once they're there. Um, And I think that helps in a couple of ways. It gives you an idea of what it's really like behind the scenes, not that what the the show they're putting on for you, what it's actually like. Um, and it also to go frequently to visit, um, if it's a, you know, a place other than the home shows that there are people watching and people who care and that should not make a difference in care, but it's very clear that it does. Um, so really being visible and present makes a difference. And you also don't want to be deluded by, um, at facilities by, you know, sort of, um, linens and fresh flowers. Um, yes, that's lovely. It's everybody feels and, you know, feels better in beautiful environment. So those are important. Um, But they're not what matters most. What matters most is how the human beings are interacting and treating each other. So you want to see, you know, are the staff just on their phones and talking to each other and ignoring the older people who live there? Or is it that um, this uh, resident is saying to the person, oh, how did your daughter do on that test? You know, or the staff person is saying, how was the movie last night? You know, like you, you want to have like normal human interactions because these are all human beings. So the greater extent that people treat each other as human beings, um, the more likely people are to be happy in that um, location. So it makes um, a big difference. I, I love that you said that because I've I've heard uh, lots of stories and I did have um, my mother-in-law in hospice and and you know for them to know what's going on in um, in somebody's life is a real sign that they're caring and you want them to care right. because they're with your family member for 24 hours a day where you can only go to visit you know a few hours every day or not even every day so you want them to have a good time you know and to feel right like, well, and you want right them, yeah sorry you want them to see the person as the human being they are and not yeah. as a task or a widget yeah. to be you know managed <laughs> Exactly, because that's what they are. And that's going to bring them, you know, uh, better health, as we know, um, because they're treated mm-hmm. like a human being. Right. Um, so now if somebody has any questions or they want to find your book, how can they get a hold of you or, or, or access your book? 
Um, the book is available at bookstores all over the country. It's still selling very well um, after being on the New York Times bestseller list for a while. So it's in uh, bookstores around the country. We went to a sixth or seventh printing recently. Uh, so that was great. Um, it's also on all the online retailers, very easy to get. Um, uh, indie Books or Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And they can find me on my website, which is www.louisearonson.com if they want to see you know, videos or hear me on Fresh Air or see me on the Today Show, whatever else, it's all there. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a really important topic, and I'm I'm glad that, that you have done this because you've done a, a really good job at bringing a lot of awareness. Your book is a great read. Well, thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, we clearly think similarly about uh, all kinds of important health things. <laughs> I, I think so. Um, so, um, everybody, today we were talking with Louise Aronson. Her book is Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, and Reimagining Life. What a beautiful title. Uh, if you want more information about what I went through to get back to health, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or email me at anantacalgary at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 